This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to Rear Vision, the show that dives into the past to illuminate the present. I'm Kerry Phillips, and with the UK just weeks away from the EU exit door, we'll look at the Brexit story from the European perspective. The European Union has said farewell to the United Kingdom, voting overwhelmingly to ratify the Brexit withdrawal agreement. Emotions bubbled to the surface as a union forged 47 years ago and friendships cemented far earlier moved towards a new phase. So this vote is not an adieu. This vote, Mr President, is in my opinion only an au revoir. We will always love you and we will never be far. Long live Europe. On the 31st of December, Britain will cut its final ties with the EU. The United Kingdom has never hidden its ambivalent attitude towards the European Union. It likes the economic advantages, but dislikes the overall EU project of ever greater integration. Over the decades, the EU has accommodated significant British exemptions, opt-outs, from things like the Schengen Agreement on open borders between members. Under Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher in 1984, the EU famously granted a significant rebate on Britain's financial contribution to the Union. What we are asking is for a very large amount of our own money back. Broadly speaking, for every £2 we contribute, we get £1 back. That leaves us with a net contribution of £1,000 million next year to the community and rising in the future. It's that £1,000 million on which we started to negotiate because we want the greater part back. It started with Thatcher insisting on, on a rebate that Britain would have to contribute less than the others. Professor Paul de Grauer is head of the European Institute at the London School of Economics. And that, of course, had later on the effect of other countries also claiming that they were contributing too much and asking for a rebate. And that led to quite a lot of what is called here opt-outs. Um, the, the most important opt-out certainly was the Eurozone. So at the Treaty of Maastricht, the British government insisted that it didn't want to ever join the Eurozone and as a result, it would not sign the Maastricht Treaty, a treaty that in fact made the joining of the Eurozone compulsory, provided certain conditions, macroeconomic conditions are satisfied. But Britain didn't want to, to join that and obtained an opt-out, did not have to join. The biggest shock to European politics since the fall of the Berlin Wall is reverberating worldwide tonight. The referendum was expected to be tight, but in the end, it didn't turn out that way. The British answered emphatically they wanted out of the EU. Brexit, stage right. Yeah! And British voters turn a political drama into a blockbuster. The result of the Brexit referendum in 2016 was as much a surprise in the EU as it was in the UK. Anand Menon is director of the UK in a Changing Europe initiative. Well, people were surprised, stunned, I would say. I suspect that immediately after the vote, there were people sitting by the phone in Brussels waiting for the British Prime Minister to ring up and say, how are you going to help us get out of this mess? 
And I think there was an element of surprise when that call never came, when David Cameron simply said, OK, we're going to honour this vote. Oh, and incidentally, I'm going to leave my job. So there was profound disappointment. But I think that changed into something else as it became clear that the UK, particularly under Theresa May, was going to go ahead and do this thing. It shifted into a sense of determination to ensure that the Brexit undertaking did not damage the European Union. So from sadness, they went to a sort of determination to make sure that the spillovers on them were as limited as possible. What did that mean? They did that by playing quite hardball in the negotiations in at least a couple of ways. Firstly, by making it clear that they weren't going to make a special exception for the United Kingdom. That's to say they weren't going to give us some kind of sweet deal because we were the UK, because they were very keen to make it clear to populists in in their own member states that actually if you leave, you don't get a sweetheart deal. And secondly, throughout the negotiations, there's been a sense amongst the member states that actually if Brexit is going to give out the message we want it to give, it's going to have to be economically painful for the United Kingdom. The worst of all worlds for the European Union, in a way, would be that Brexit happens and the UK comes out of it looking prosperous and happy. Brexit was to happen in two steps. First, a withdrawal agreement, then the negotiations on the future relationship. The remaining 27 members had to agree on the position the EU would take to both sets of talks. Nicholas Poitier, a research fellow at the European think tank Bruegel, says there was a surprising degree of unity on the EU side. Yes, I think that's the first thing to point out. There was a lot of unity. There was kind of a common approach. This notion that the European Union doesn't really move much and it's not really compromising enough. I think it is true, but it's actually the way the European Union works. So you have 27 heads of state that have to agree on something. And then it's really difficult to to diverge from this agreement. We have seen this over and over in negotiations, international negotiations, but also in internal negotiations, where actually because every country has a veto power in, in many of these negotiations, there's kind of a lowest common denominator approach sometimes to to external relations, which in this case actually makes the line very tough. Michel Barnier, who is the negotiator with the UK, both on the withdrawal agreement we negotiated last year and on the current negotiations about the future relationship, he doesn't really have a mandate to make big concessions. He would have to go back to all the 27 member states. They would have to negotiate if they think these concessions are right, and then they will have to come back. Camino Mortera Martinez is a senior research fellow at the think tank, the Centre for European Reform. One of the main things that we've seen throughout the process of the negotiations has been that the European Union insisted from day one that they first wanted to negotiate what they call the withdrawal agreement, which it's basically akin to a divorce agreement. So uh, you and I are separating and we need some sort of paper saying that we are and who is going to get the kids and all this sort of thing. So that's the withdrawal agreement. And the European Union wanted absolutely nothing to do with the UK until the withdrawal agreement was finalized, whereas the UK wanted to negotiate sort of the divorce papers at the same time as they wanted to negotiate what's going to happen with us, you know, as a couple, so to speak, once the divorce is over. During the negotiations, one thing that's remarkable and that the UK also was not expecting was absolute unity of the European Union's member states. But one remarkable thing was that all countries reunited around Ireland. And Ireland, as you may know, had a lot to lose as well when it comes to negotiating the what, what we call the Irish backstop. So what's going to happen with Northern Ireland once the UK 
leaves the European Union. Is there going to be a border in the island of Ireland, which is not acceptable for anybody around there? Although it hardly rated a mention during the referendum campaign in Britain, the border between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland, the only land border between the UK and the EU, became hugely significant. The return of a hard border with customs checks and so on could reignite the troubles, the 30 years of conflict ended by the Good Friday Agreement. The Irish border became one of the three critical issues the EU brought to the table for resolution during the withdrawal agreement negotiations. Before I get into these three things, just a reminder perhaps that it was the UK's government as well who made the clock ticking. Nobody forced Theresa May to trigger Article 50 when she did, which meant that they only had two years to negotiate, and nobody's forcing Johnson either to say that they have to find an agreement by the end of the year. So basically, all the deadlines have been given by the UK, and they want quick deadlines, but this is not the way the European Union works. The European Union is a big negotiating machinery that usually takes years and years to find consensus and agreements. So the ticking clock was actually detrimental for the UK. The European Union said, okay, we are not going to negotiate anything until we solve the three main issues for us. And those three main issues were the money. So how much money was the UK going to pay the European Union for living, if you want, because their living unexpectedly was leaving a big hole in the budget of the European Union. So there, there was a need to compensate that in a way. The second question was citizens' rights. And that was very important for both parties, what's going to happen with British people in the European Union, but also what's going to happen with Europeans in the UK. And the third the third question was the question of Ireland. So these three things were like an absolute priority for the European Union to solve. And they said, we will not move with trade talks or anything else until we solve this. Britain struggled to find the same level of agreement as the EU. The first issue and the fundamental issue, which is why Brexit proved so problematic, is that we, the British, were profoundly divided about it. The referendum had been carried by 52 to 48. If you look at that 52, they had very different views as to what Brexit should mean. And one of the defining features of the Brexit process from 2016 all the way through to now is that it has been difficult, if not impossible, to identify a stable majority of the British people in favour of any particular Brexit outcome. So there's a chunk in favour of what we might call a very hard Brexit, a chunk in favour of a softer sort of Brexit, and a chunk that wish we hadn't left at all. So it's been very, very hard to build a stable coalition here. And the experience of Mrs May as Prime Minister was that she struggled to get consensus among her own government. And of course, if you're not united amongst yourselves, it becomes a lot harder to negotiate with someone else. Now, the second level of problems lay in the fact that the EU imposed a structure on the negotiations that the Brits didn't like from the first. So take sequencing, the European Union said, we have to resolve the issues of the past before we resolve the issues of the future. Now, this was, as was so much that the EU said during Brexit, slightly disingenuous, because while resolving the past, they also wanted to resolve the future of Northern Ireland. So they weren't exactly true to their word. But by saying we have to solve the money, we have to solve citizens' rights before we can talk about a trade deal, what the EU effectively did 
was neutralize perhaps our strongest bargaining card, which was how much money we'd give to the European Union. I think our then Brexit secretary, David Davis, was convinced that the best way to negotiate with the EU was to say, give us a really good trade deal or we won't give you any cash. But the EU, by insisting on this particular sequencing of the talks, meant that we couldn't do that sort of linkage. So the eyes have it. The eyes have it. Just one week on from his election win, Boris Johnson's broken a deadlock that's consumed the UK for more than three years. To get Brexit done. Now is the moment as we leave the European Union to reunite our country. With an 80-strong Conservative majority, this bill was never in doubt. What's less certain is the future trading relationship between the UK and EU. The Prime Minister set himself an ambitious target for negotiations. The bill ensures that the implementation period must end on the 31st of December next year with no possibility of an extension. The withdrawal agreement passed in the UK Parliament in December last year. The Irish backstop had become the Irish Protocol, but the change of name couldn't disguise the fact that Prime Minister Boris Johnson signed off on the solution the EU had wanted. It effectively put a border between the UK and the Republic of Ireland in the Irish Sea. Two months ago, the UK government tried to undo this part of the agreement with legislation that would bypass the Northern Ireland Protocol, while admitting at the time that it would break international law and setting off a legal challenge from the EU. This is Radio National's Rear Vision with Kerry Phillips. As the clock ticks down on the end of Britain's EU membership, we're looking at Brexit from the continental side. happened in the EU since the Brexit vote? Well, several things have happened. But I mean, the first thing worth saying is the most important thing that has happened in the EU since the Brexit referendum is Brexit has become a hell of a lot less important to the European Union, because in the meantime, they've had issues to deal with over migration. They've had a continued simmering fight about the structure of their own currency, the Eurozone. There have been great tensions between Western member states and Eastern member states over dissent into illiberalism in the East. And of course, last but by no means least, you've had the pandemic. So in a sense, from being sort of shell-shocked on the day after the referendum, the EU have moved to a position where Brexit is a second, third or even fourth order issue for them. While preparations for Brexit in the UK seem chaotic, with business leaders publicly complaining they don't know what's happening, the EU is well prepared. Professor de Grauer. Well, it's certainly better prepared than the UK itself, right? Uh, and this comes from the fact that there was a big asymmetry here. The um, trade of the EU with Britain represents less than 10% of total EU trade while the trade of the UK with the EU is about 50% of uh, UK trade. So the huge asymmetry here, the, the trade that the UK has with the EU is proportionately much more important for the UK than this same trade is for the EU as a whole. But of course, we also have to adjust. There will be more customs preparations and, and bureaucratic interventions that have to be done but again, proportionately, as a percent of, say, GDP, then, this weighs much less than for the UK. So on the whole, we are relatively well prepared. Not every EU member has close economic ties with Britain. 
Well, the absolute outlier when it comes to engagement with the United Kingdom is, of course, the Republic of Ireland. Now, the economic impact of Brexit on the Republic of Ireland is almost as great, not as great, but almost as great as it is on parts of the United Kingdom itself. So Ireland has a particular interest in maintaining a good trading relationship with the United Kingdom. But, you know, the further away geographically you get from the UK, you go all the way down to Croatia, you have member states that are far less concerned about the trading relationship because they do relatively little trade with us. After Ireland, you've got countries like France, Belgium, the Netherlands, some of the Scandinavian countries that trade quite heavily with us. But you're right, not every member state is as concerned by this negotiation as some of the most directly implicated. Might there be an opportunity for some economic gain on the EU side with Britain gone? I would say probably not. I would say it's a clear loss. How big the loss is, there is a bit of a question mark. I mean, it's difficult to calculate and it's always a bit speculation, but there's going to be a loss from that. I think there are positives maybe for the European Union for particular sectors and in particular services sectors that UK is a service heavy industry around half of its exports are services which most famous the city of London and the banking sector in London and basically these are going to be one of the hardest hit sectors by Brexit because especially in services it's important that you meet specific requirements and it's professional licensing are you allowed with your UK license to operate in another country it's kind of the recognition of standards of certificates and so on. And for instance, in financial services, the the right to operate banking operations, having banking operations in the EU coming from the UK. And this is not going to be the case anymore. So there's already a reshift from assets and jobs from London to other European financial centers. Probably we're going to see more of that over the next years. So there's going to be a relocation of financial services from London to other European financial capitals. The same might be true for other industries, that there's particular industry that at the moment have strong UK competition that might just this competition will be weakened. So I think specific sectors might benefit, but I think as a whole, it's, I would say it's a clear loss. Britain's departure will have an effect on the EU budget itself. There's a pot of money into which each member pays, used to finance EU projects on things like the environment, security and the student exchange programme Erasmus. The withdrawal agreement secures UK contributions for the next EU budget, which covers the next seven years. Well, as you know, Britain was a net contributor, so it paid out more than it received from the EU. Uh, Germany is an even bigger net contributor. The net contribution of Britain was about eight or nine billion euros a year, so that will fall out. But don't forget that in the withdrawal agreement, the Brits have accepted to continue to make payments in the next seven-year budget. The EU has a budget that is programmed for the next seven years, right? So Britain will continue to contribute, not as much as it did before, but still a substantial amount, so that for the current EU budget negotiations that have been finalized now, this has not appeared to be a major issue. Of course, for the next one, but that's in seven years from now, there will be a shortfall that will have to be taken up. But I think this should not create major issues because in relative terms, it's still not very much.
The effect of Britain's departure on the EU won't just be economic, but also political. Well, the first thing to say is I don't think there's going to be a massive change because Britain is not there. I don't think the EU is going to fall apart because other states want to do what we have done. Neither do I think the EU is going to forge ahead because there are sufficient disagreements amongst the member states who are left to mean that the EU won't forge ahead and become a federation now that the annoying pesky Brits are no longer around the table. So the EU, I suspect, will muddle on much as it has always done. There will be some areas where it's able to do things that British governments would have blocked. So, for instance, this new budget, this rescue package that the EU has voted through, I very much doubt any British government, Labour or Conservative, would have gone along with the relatively ambitious plans for industrial interventionism that the European Commission has. So there are some areas where the EU is freer to do things than it would have been with Britain around the table. On the other hand, the EU as an international actor is significantly weakened by not having the United Kingdom around the table and not having access to our diplomatic network, our intelligence capabilities and so on. And the EU economy as a whole becomes significantly smaller without one of its largest economies in it anymore. As long as Britain was in the EU, it would try to block any attempt of further political integration. For the Brits, the EU was just a trade arrangement. Make sure that goods and services can flow freely, but don't talk about more political integration. Now it's out. As a result, it might be easier. I'm not going to say it's easy, but easier when Britain is out to move forward into more political integration in in the EU. So that's one area. The other area is that Britain has always been the country insisting on free markets and all that. And in fact, the internal market was essentially an idea of the, the British government, Thatcher, right? She found this fantastic an internal market where you can freely trade without impediments, no tariffs, but also no other obstacles to trade. And so the free market would work at the European level. So this was essentially pushed forward by the British government. And, and of course, this force now has disappeared in, on the European continent. Watching the struggle over Brexit, it's hard to imagine other EU members feeling encouraged to leave. The initial fear in the EU was, oh, if uh, Britain leaves, that would be the first domino that falls, right? And others will follow. And, and in fact, among the populist movements, for example, in France and in Italy, this was seen as a unique opportunity to ultimately do the same thing. But that has changed. I mean, it has turned out to be quite a mess to leave. And um, the perception is that those who leave will be losing. And I think it's more than a perception, right? That it's, it's a certainty that Britain is going to lose in this whole thing. And as a result, the enthusiasm or, or at least the incentive to, to follow the British lead has become very weak. So I don't think there is any mention today of this happening. Now, of course, the future, we don't know. Huh? Many, many things can happen. But at this moment, I think the risk of other countries doing the same thing as Britain is extremely low. After the withdrawal agreement was endorsed by both sides last January, the clock was ticking on signing a trade deal before the end of the year. Well, the EU member states came up with some broad principles to govern their approach to the trade talks, and they were principles such as 
the British can't have some bits of the single market, but not others. So broad over underlying principles, yes. But then what happened at the end of last year was the UK and the EU sat down and negotiated this so-called political declaration. So both sides put their name on a document that outlined their ambitions for the talks. But then the third stage is after the election of December last year, Boris Johnson made it clear that actually the only kind of deal he was after was a very minimal one. So many of the tensions that we'd seen under Theresa May, where Theresa May was, was seen by the EU, I think, as trying to get more than she really could out of the European Union while making very few sacrifices. Those issues didn't really exist under Boris Johnson to the same extent because he, from the start, said, actually, I don't want very much. So I don't want the sort of things that Theresa May was asking for. We left the European Union on January the 31st and delivered on the largest democratic mandate in the history of this country. And since then, we've been in a transition period, obeying EU law, paying our fees, as a non-voting member, working on the future relationship we hope to enjoy with our friends and partners from January. And from the outset, we were totally clear that we wanted nothing more complicated than a Canada-style relationship with arrangements that are more like Australia's, based on simple principles of global free trade. The British Prime Minister has often talked about a Canada-style, even an Australia-style, free trade deal. But the EU, despite an early misstep, was never going to give the British the same deal as any other country. Here is an example where I think the EU misplayed its hand, because quite early on in the negotiations, Michel Barnier released a PowerPoint slide, what people in Britain call the staircase of doom, that outlined the various options open to Britain in terms of future relationship with the European Union. And on this PowerPoint slide, you had the Turkish flag, you had the Norwegian flag, the Swiss flag, the Canadian flag, all indicating different potential endpoints of the negotiations. Now, the problem with this is though, whilst these generic models, the Canada deal, the Swiss deal, we also nowadays talk about the Australia deal, which is a bit weird, but we can come back onto that if you want is whilst they were broad, generic outcomes, the EU made it clear from the start it was never going to offer us exactly the same deal as it offered to other countries because every trade negotiation is specific and we are unlike any of those other countries in that we are a very big economy right on the EU's doorstep. And so the EU made it clear from the start that, yes, we'll negotiate along the lines of a Canada deal, but you are going to have to sign up to guarantees the Canadians don't have to sign up to because you're a competitor in the way the Canadians aren't. What's the reference to an Australia-style deal? Because although Australia is currently negotiating a trade treaty with the EU, it doesn't actually have one now. We have a government in the UK that uses Australia as an adjective to conjure up a vision of something good. Okay, So when we have an Australia-style point system for immigration or Australia-style deal with the European Union, I think the government wants us to think of you know, a country where everyone's happy, it's sunny, there are beaches, and you play cricket all the time. So it's, it's meant to be a good thing if you use the word Australia. The problem with an Australia-type deal with the EU is firstly that the Australians have a number of bilateral agreements with the EU already. So An Australia deal isn't no deal. It is a series of deals covering all sorts of technical issues. So, I mean, apart from the fact that it is factually wrong, the Australia analogy is quite a nice one. At the time of this recording, there's no deal yet. But just how important is a deal to both sides? Would a failure to reach an agreement be calamitous? A, 
if we don't sign a trade deal, it would have a greater negative impact on our economies than if we did. And, you know, at a time when our economies are reeling from the impact of the pandemic, it's probably better to avoid additional economic pain if we can. But secondly, I think there's also a realisation that if the talks collapse, then there's a real danger that both sides blame the other side for that failure and that political relations between the UK and the 27 become very, very strained indeed at a moment when on issues ranging from China to how to deal with a new US administration to climate change, we really need to be working together. Anand Menon, Professor of European Politics and Foreign Affairs at King's College London. Thanks to him and my other guests, Professor Paul de Grauer, former member of the Belgian Parliament, now an academic at the LSE, Nicolas Poitier from Bruegel, and Camino Mortera Martinez from the Centre for European Reform. Isabella Tropiano is the sound engineer for this Rear Vision. Thanks for listening. Bye from Kerry Phillips. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.